This is Africa Digest. Hello, good evening and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa and on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. We are also on Channel 902 on the DSCV Audible My name is Spumela Lezonde with Asanda Mataunyane. We're sending Matabula and Vigile Lingwati. It's 1700 hours Central African time. Let's take a look at the top stories. Angolan authorities accused of tightening screws against freedom of expression. An innovation by SADAC shortlisted for a prestigious award. In economics, Air Mauritius narrows its first half pre-tax loss to 4.1 million US dollars. And in sports, 27 African countries joined the race to Russia 2018. Here's Asanda Good evening. According to a new report published by journalists for justice rights groups, Kenyan defense forces in Somalia are actively involved in illegal charcoal and sugar trade, including widespread human rights abuses. Kenyan soldiers have in the past been accused of engaging in various human rights violations such as rape, torture and abduction and conducting airstrikes targeting crowds and animals in Somalia. But Kenya military headquarters in Nairobi deny the allegations. Mwaiki Konyo reports. Kenyan military headquarters in Nairobi has denied the allegations, insisting that Kenyan soldiers in Somalia were fighting hard against the Somali insurgent al-Shabaab as part of the AU mission in Somalia, AMISOM. Kenyan soldiers were deployed in Somalia in 2011 after a string of kidnappings of tourists and aid workers blamed on the Somali al-Shabaab militants. The new report by journalists for Justice Rights Group is based on months of research in both the Somalia and Kenya, including interviews with the sugar traders, porters, drivers, Kenyan and United Nations officials, including Western intelligence sources. A report by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum has found that Islamic State militants committed genocide against Iraq's Yazidis and carried out crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and war crimes against other minorities. The crimes were committed in Nineveh province between June and August last year. The report by the Museum Center for the Prevention of Genocide has raised concerns about the commission and risk of genocide against these groups. The United Nations said in March that Islamic State may have committed genocide in trying to wipe out the Yazidi minority and urged the UN Security Council to refer the issue to the International Criminal Court for prosecution. Zimbabwe is set to impose a three-month ban on sport hunting as it investigates the escalating cases of wildlife poaching in the country. Speaking at a wildlife stakeholders meeting in Harare to brainstorm strategies to curb poaching, the country's environment minister, Opa Muchinguri, says 71 elephants have been killed in recent weeks. The elephants died when suspected poachers laced water sources with the poison cyanide in the Hangwe National Park, the country's largest game reserve. According to Muchinguri, the poachers have moved north into Manapools National Park, a UNESCO Natural World Heritage Site. Every 20 seconds, a child somewhere in the world dies of pneumonia. This is according to the World Health Organization, which rates pneumonia as the leading infectious disease or cause of death of children worldwide, despite advances in treatment. As the globe marks World Pneumonia Day, Dr. Dominic Stott says awareness is vital in preventing fatalities. And finally, the Danish national facing several charges in South Africa, including the mutilation of female genitalia, has told a packed Bloemfontein magistrate's court that he is not a fugitive from justice in his home country. In his testimony, accused Peter Friedrichsen says his lawyer told him that he could serve a six-month sentence handed down in 2010 for unlicensed firearms at a later stage. Documents from the Danish police show that an application to this effect was made but rejected 
rejected. Frederiksen says he plans to plead not guilty to all charges. He was arrested on the 17th of September after human tissue believed to be mutilated female genitalia were found in his freezer. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. It's 17.05 Central African time. Now as Angola yesterday marked the 40th anniversary of the country's independence, Amnesty International said President Jose Eduardo dos Santos is tightening a stranglehold on freedom of expression and his government's decades of fear and repression caused an indelible stain on the celebrations. The organization says 40 years after independence, many Angolans still have a long way before they will realize their human rights freedoms because those who express views that differ from those of the regime are subjected to brutal treatment. More from Muleya Mwananyanda, who is Amnesty International's Deputy Director for Southern Africa. We are saying that because many human rights defenders are suffering in jail merely for asking for accountability and respect for human rights. The state is using police and the judiciary to entrench fear and to silence critical voices. Those who have challenged President Jose Eduardo dos Santos' government in recent years have been subjected to extrajudicial killings, forced disappearances, arbitrary arrests and torture by state security forces. Now, with the country marking its um, independence yesterday, 40th anniversary, that is, uh, as amnesty, what is it that you would have liked to see happen to these celebrations, or rather, how the country should have marked this um, independence? I think the country should have marked this independence by having freedoms for all, uh, by allowing people to express themselves, to assemble freely, um, and not to arbitrarily arrest people who do not necessarily agree with the government or people who just simply sit together to talk about democracy uh, because Angola is uh, purportedly a democracy. So um, it's according to its constitution, it's a democracy, but in practice it's really not. So in order for people to enjoy real freedoms, it must be there in law but also in practice. Amnesty has also raised concern with regards to the 16 activists who've been imprisoned in Angola. Ultimately, what is your concern with regards to the arrest of these activists and what would you like to see happen to them? So the concern with the arrest of these activists is that you will recall that they were arrested and held for over 90 days before they were charged. Um, and they've been incarcerated now for five months and they're only going to court next week, rather. So... Um, Our concern really is that these are people who were just arrested for discussing uh, freely issues around what they think about how the country is being run. Uh, So um, our major concern is that they have been uh, ill-treated, and secondly, that some of them, as a result, have gone on hunger strike, uh, resulting in really, really um, uh, terrible consequences for their health. So what we would like, actually, is for them to be uh, released, for their charges to be unconditionally uh, dismissed. African media leaders have started deliberations on pertinent issues in the media industry that they feel need to be changed if the media is to play a positive role in information dissemination. They are meeting under the African Media Leaders Forum that is organized by the African Media Initiative. Coletto Andre reports. African media leaders meet every year to discuss arising issues as well as those that have continued challenging the freedom and operation of the media industry in Africa. According to this year's forum that has just begun in Johannesburg, South Africa, as Africa is growing economically, the media seems to be stuck on less reporting on this growth. The media reportage is often clouded by news of political conflicts, fantasies, less details on arising issues, and in the long run, the Western media seems to have taken over the role of reporting about Africa. At the African Media Leaders Forum organized by the African Media Initiative, the president of Mauritius, Amina Gurib, has thrown a challenge to both the media owners and media practitioners to step up their responsibility. Seen against this backdrop, the time is opportune to ask several key questions. What role African media can play in shaping evidence-based conversation about development? At a time of rapid transformation, how can a more positive 
and hopeful narrative emerge. Are African media up to the mark by creating the space for participatory citizenship to take hold and drive the conversation needed to sustain Africa's positive trends? Finally, I would like to use my pulpit to call for a more hopeful people and development-centered narrative that can be embraced by all Africans. Mamadou Biteye, the managing director for Rockefeller Foundation, on the other hand, has also pointed out that African media has failed to delve deeper into issues and end up feeding the population with half-researched work. Do you really ask yourself, why do I report on this story? Is it just to get the job done and get paid? And this only in those instances where the media do get paid? Or is it to bring about desired change and also equip citizens with the information and help them hold stakeholders to account? In a bid to change the media conversation in the continent, Dr. Iqbal Sav, the founder of the Sekunjalo Investment Group that has invested widely in the media industry, says that content that is put out by African media has to change for the better. Until we take control of our own destiny, and that is the content narrative, we are always going to have, as the keynote speaker has said, the narrative being told by us. And I know that's been said in many, many ways in in, over, over, the, over the history of time, but it's really important that we take control of our narrative and destiny. More issues, including the advent of technology that is very dynamic in the current world, will be discussed by these media owners and how Africa can shape its continent to match with the dynamism of this technological growth. Coletta Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Johannesburg, South Africa. 1711 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. More than 60 European and African leaders are meeting in the Maltese capital, Valletta, in an effort to strengthen cooperation in the area of migration and address the current challenges and opportunities. Over the last few months, Europe has been confronted with the unprecedented number of migrants and refugees arriving in the region for various reasons, including conflicts and economic instability. However, thousands have lost their lives during the often dangerous journeys at sea, while others find themselves stranded along the migratory route. For more on this issue, here's a spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration, Itai Veriri. Well, the European Union several months ago established what they called a trust fund for Africa where they pledged 1.8 billion euros, which we understand is going to be increased, I think, to over 3 billion euros in the coming years. And the idea for this trust fund is that it's money that can be spent in assisting governments to try and improve economic conditions in their countries, whereby young people who are usually the ones who migrate in this manner can actually stay at home. Now, it certainly doesn't sound like a lot when you really consider that you're talking of a vast continent and also when you compare it to, say, last year, 11 billion euros was repatriated as remittances. So it's actually quite a small amount. But the idea is that this will kickstart, I suppose, initiatives that will lessen the need for young people to migrate. Now, European leaders say many Africans um, come to Europe in search for work and those who come, particularly looking for work, should be sent home. What are your views on this? I think it's probably quite uh, counterintuitive for the leaders to be saying that because the reality is that for quite a lot of European countries, especially Germany and the Scandinavian countries, they actually are facing a demographic time bomb in that they will need young people who can run their economies, who can work and provide the kind of services that they need to maintain their economic growth. So, for example, Germany apparently needs half a million migrants per year for the next few years, on top of what they already get, because they need to fill quite a lot of skill gaps and even the unskilled workflows. The reality is that most of the leaders are taking a political decision because migration is not very popular with the electorate, so they will say this, but the reality is that they need people to come in and work. Now, the meeting brings African leaders um, on board this time. Is it a sign of efforts to address the root causes that are driving uh, people to flee to Europe? Definitely is, and it's also about time that this kind of meeting was held because so far we've been hearing a lot about what the European Union is doing to try and deal with this migration situation. So having the African leaders on the table is essential because most of the people who are migrating and also sadly dying through this migration process are Africans. 
So it's interesting to see how much the African Union, how much cloud it will have in the final decisions that will be made out of this conference. But it's at least a starting step. And has Europe, in your view, at Thai, overcome its division in terms of how to deal with the migration crisis on the block? Because I know that there were some serious divisions on the ways to tackle this particular issue. This is improving because in the last few days, in fact weeks, they've started what they call a relocation plan. So they're taking migrants who have arrived in Italy and Greece to Northern Europe. So we've had a relocation flight to Scandinavia, to Germany, to Spain, and so on. So they're trying to ease the burden on the two countries that have been mostly affected, which are Greece and uh, Italy. So that's an improvement, but they still need to do more in terms of the numbers that are being relocated. Itai Ferreira is a spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration and he is in Geneva in Switzerland and he was talking to Zekona Miso. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1716 Central African Time. You can find us on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. That is Channel Africa 1. They said a commission of inquiry was yesterday expected to table findings in Mozambique following investigations into Lesotho security and the death of former army commander Mambarangwe Mahau. The commission terms of reference include investigating the circumstances surrounding Mahau's death as well as changes in the command of the Lesotho Defense Force. Channel Africa's Ilitongo Maboshe spoke to Dr. Anthony Gappa, political analyst and lecturer at the National University of Lesotho, who explains whether the commission will achieve its objectives. Well, we are expecting that it should, given the manner in which the commission conducted this business in Lesotho. What will remain, I think, will be uh, implementation of the recommendations that it is going to make. But generally, on the whole, people are hopeful that uh, it should achieve what it was intended to achieve. What challenges were faced by the Commission? Yeah, the Commission faced very, very serious challenges, especially towards the end of its uh, business in the city. The main issue was the evidence that was to be collected from the political leadership uh, that has crossed into South Africa and uh, those other Basutu who are in South Africa. The government was saying uh, that evidence was not going to be admissible because it was now outside uh, the boundaries of the Sotho. But the Commission nevertheless continued and did its work uh, until it finished. Uh, there was also an attempt by one of the military officers to sue the Commission towards the end. But all this uh, came to pass and we expect in the report, just like I've indicated, and then the report should be able to chart the way forward. The main expectation really on the ground is that uh, uh, those who have committed acts of crime uh, should be put before the courts of law. There shouldn't be any impunity at all. That is the general mood on the ground. And I, we, hope, we hope that Sadak uh, uh, will facilitate the process and make sure that all those people who may have uh, committed uh, crimes will indeed be accountable for what they did uh, so that the country can find lasting peace uh, and, and proceed. Dr. Kappa, do you think the exiled opposition leaders will be able to return home after the release of the Sadiq Commission of Inquiry Investigations? We hope they should be. We hope that this time around will we'll face this issue directly and then 
uh, level the playing field for all Basuti to go back to their country and uh, put all those that uh, have committed act of crime uh, to go before the, before the course of the law. The main reason why the Brennan of the country was because they said they feared for their lives. And then Sadak should really facilitate that. They should be able to go back. If Sadak doesn't facilitate that, it will be very difficult for them uh, to go back home. Even this morning, we were listening to the former Prime Minister and the leader of the ABC uh, talking over uh, the media, indicating that they are still prepared to go back home, provided that all those reasons that force them to leave the country, especially the fear of their, for their lives, uh, once that is guaranteed, they will be able to go back home. There, there were negotiations between the current Prime Minister and the former Prime Minister until the government uh, offered to provide security to the former Prime Minister in the form of the police, which is what he's been asking for. And then the government also had offered to give him a government house. But uh, the leader of NDC said he wasn't really happy to go back home, leaving other person to the side, leaving other leaders. Uh, that is the leader of the BNP and the leader of the RCL, and, of course, other Basutu soldiers and civilians who have fled. So he said he wouldn't really go back and leave those people here. And uh, we were expecting negotiations to continue so that they can all go back home. But uh, the latest reports we see in the media are that the Prime Minister is has given up hope on, 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 on that. So we do not know. Now probably what will help us is the, the, the commission report maybe to shut the way forward. That's Dr. Anthony Gabba, who's a political analyst and lecturer at the National University of Lesotho, talking to Channel Africa's Ilitongo Maposhe. According to a new report published by Journalists for Justice Rights Group, Kenyan Defense Forces in Somalia are actively involved in illegal charcoal and sugar trade, including widespread human rights abuses. Far from fighting the Al-Shabaab militants in Somalia, Kenyan soldiers have been accused of engaging in various corrupt business practices, including human rights violations such as rape, torture and abduction and conducting airstrikes targeting a crowd and animals in Somalia. But Kenya military headquarters in Nairobi has denied the allegations, insisting that Kenyan soldiers in Somalia were fighting hard against the Somali insurgent Al-Shabaab as part of the African Union mission in Somalia, AMISOM. Kenyan soldiers were deployed in Somalia in 2011 after a string of kidnappings of tourists and aid workers blamed on the Somali Al-Shabaab militants. Here's Mikey Konya. He's in Nairobi. The new report by Journalists for Justice Rights Group is based on months of research in both the Somalia and Kenya, including interviews with the sugar traders, porters, drivers, Kenyan and United Nations officials, including Western intelligence sources. Far from fighting the Al-Shabaab insurgents in Somalia, the report claims that Kenyan soldiers in Somalia are actively involved in illegal sugar and charcoal trade worth $400 million. According to the report, Kenyan soldiers in Somalia are also involved in human rights violations that includes the rape, torture and abduction and conducting air strikes targeting crowds and animals. According to the coordinator of the rights group, Makoha, the report is very disturbing since Kenya's top military officials are also involved in the illegal trade. Very disturbing that we have corroborated and checked these statements. We have interviewed uh, over 50 people, including members of the Kenya Defense Forces serving in Somalia and also those uh, based in Nairobi. And, and we have no doubt, we have no doubt that this these allegations are true. It's really at the top leadership. We are talking brigadiers, we are talking, we are talking generals perhaps. Um, there are people who are involved, at, mostly at the officer corps. Uh, there are captains, there are brigadiers, there are generals who have been mentioned uh, as being involved in collecting these taxes and, and in providing protection also for the trade to go on. So this, these allegations are not, not as unfounded and as wild as they sound. The UN specifically, the sanctions committee said that the trading in charcoal needed to Kenya has been appealing for the lifting of that ban because it benefits. It's the military officers who are involved in this trade are pushing to make sure that that trade, which has been officially sanctioned by the, the UN, continues. Persistent allegations of Kenya's military involvement in illegal business dealings in Somalia 
Fasi March soon after the army occupied the southern port town of Kismayo in 2012, where they took control of a stockpile of millions of sacks of chaco. And according to the rice group, the chaco business still goes on. The Kenya Defense Forces went to Kismayo to stop Al-Shabaab from benefiting from chaco. And that hasn't stopped. In fact, the stockpiles of charcoal have increased. Uh, as they continue to provide security at the port, they tax the charcoal and split the profits between them and Raskamboni, which runs the Jubaland administration in southern Somalia, which also splits with Al-Shabaab, with whom they have a very fairly formal relationship. They also tax sugar that comes into Somalia, into Kismayo, and then is, is smuggled into Kenya. Very disturbing that we have corroborated and checked these statements. We have interviewed uh, over 50 people, including members of the Kenya Defense Forces serving in Somalia and also those in, uh, based in Nairobi. And, and we have no doubt, we have no doubt that these, these allegations are true. But Kenyan military spokesman Colonel David Obonio has vehemently denied these allegations. Many times I've repeated this, that uh, KDF is not involved in charcoal business or sugar business. We have no authority in Kismayo. It alleges that we control Kismayo. Kismayo stopped being in the KDF sector in, uh, after the Kampala summit of uh, August 14, 2014. It became a multinational uh, sector and forces from Sierra Leone, Burundi, and Nigerian SPU went in to take over. The reporter or whoever alleges to have done this investigation must appreciate that Somalia has one of the coast, longest coastlines in Africa. Sector 2, where Kenya is deployed from Rajamboni at the border here in Shakane to Kismayo is only 150 kilometers. Who polices the rest? 3,150 kilometers north of Ismail, up to Bosaso and up to Somaliland. The Somalian authorities themselves appreciate the fact that there are so many makeshift ports along that coast that have not police. Kenya is not involved. We don't have any naval forces in that operation. You know, sometimes it's very bad for the morale of these soldiers who are deployed there under very hard conditions and surviving for the whole year in very, very hard conditions to ensure that the, with the stability and the security for the Somali people. And then you come here and you say we are, the, the KDF is doing a visited. How can KDF be involved in business with the people that we are fighting a war with called Al-Shabaab. Kenyan soldiers were deployed in Somalia in 2011 after a string of kidnappings of tourists and aid workers blamed on the Al-Shabaab militants. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaige Konyo in Nairobi. 1727 Central African Time is still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance with Ms. Pumela Lezondi. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African time this evening. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hotsticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I
Good evening. According to a report, Kenyan defense forces in Somalia are involved in illegal charcoal and sugar trade, including widespread human rights abuses. Yemen's third largest city, Taiz, is at the mercy of thousands of Houthi militiamen allied to former President Ali Abdullah Saleh. And at the African Media Leaders Forum, the president of Mauritius throws a challenge to media owners and media practitioners. Your news headlines here on Channel Africa. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. It's 17.30 Central African time. You still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. With me is Pumelele Zondi. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African time. For your feedback and to engage with us, you can email us on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. The South African Depression and Anxiety Group, SADAX Patient Education Innovation, the speaking book, has been shortlisted in Africa Comms Changing Lives Award category. Winners of these awards will be announced at a gala dinner next week Wednesday in the country's mother city of Cape Town. AfricaCom is Africa's biggest technology event and will bring together the continent's leaders and innovators from the digital network. For more insights on this, we're joined on the line by SEDEX KC Chambers. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Good evening. Thank you very much for having me. Before we get um, on AfricaCom, could you just tell us about the speaking book? So this is something that started working in the field of mental health. When we first started 21 years ago, there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of stigma around mental illness. So we had to think of a really innovative way that was very approachable, um, that people wanted to learn more about things like depression or bipolar that, you know, before might have scared them. And the other information that was out, whether it be brochures or materials, was so complicated and didn't really target a lot of the population, especially with low literacy level communities. So we developed the speaking book tool and some people might be able to relate to books that they've seen in a bookshop, uh, like a children's book where you have a soundtrack on the side and you press the button and the sound of a, a dog barking or a cat meowing comes out. We took the same similar concept and developed it into this educational tool conveying important health messages to communities. So we have 16 buttons per book, and we've done over 60 different titles for countries around the world on no smoking for China, children's rights for Swaziland. We've done safe use of medicines and clinical trials for India. Just empowering a lot of communities with information that before they didn't know, with important information that they can practically use and actually help them make better decisions about their illness or about their lifestyle. And it's been amazing. The speaking books are making such a big difference to so many people. We, we recently did a, a study with UNICEF, who are using the books a lot in Uganda and Nigeria. And they did research for every one book, which is distributed for free to a home-based care worker or a social worker or a church leader. It reaches at least 120 other people. So your footprint in the community that before didn't know things about safe use of medicines or how to not spread HIV or AIDS is now empowered in a way that the whole family can feel like it's not a shame to learn more about health information. How do people access these books? So these books are normally distributed through different projects um, by organizations, and we distribute them from home-based care workers to churches, community centers, schools. But people can read more about the books and see even the videos of the books that we've done for around the world and 
all kinds of different languages and they can see the different artwork and they can go to the Speakingbook website at www.speakingbooks.com. So it's very easy to remember. And they can learn more about the books and how they're used and what topics we've done and, you know, let us know what they think. And how do you decide on some of the issues that you're going to tackle? Because like you mentioned that you have different issues in different parts of the world, um, like India, for example, as opposed to what you have in South Africa. Mm. A lot of it has to be with making our partnerships and working closely with organizations, you know, that we partner with on, on mental health issues. So, for example, we've got very good relationships and we'll tackle a project together or an area a lot of the issues that we see are, are problems are normally patient-centered. So it's things that are coming through the call center, things that we're seeing in communities on the ground. So we can actually pick up these things and say, we want to do something about it. What do we do? Who do we go to? For example, when there was the Ebola breakout, we thought, what could we do to educate people about the spread of Ebola and educate them about what it is and, and how to get help? And We've been being, you know, doing talks with different organizations that are working on it, and maybe that's something in the pipeline that we could look in the future. But I think when we're looking at so many communities that are illiterate, um, they're often very marginalized, and there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in the health education sphere, and a tool like the speaking book just makes it less scary and more approachable. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you've been shortlisted in the Africa Comes Changing Lives Award category. Tell us about that. It's very exciting. Um, we have been shortlisted, so we're waiting till next week. We're holding thumbs up um, to see who the winners are. And we're in an amazing category with organizations that have done amazing work. So to even be nominated and shortlisted is a great achievement. And I think when you're looking at the people that are involved, we are really thrilled to be part of it. And we feel like we've already won just by being shortlisted. So it would be the extra bonus if we we won and had that opportunity to network and to share. But I think, again, knowing that the books have been recognized for what they're doing uh, makes us feel like the work that we're doing is so much more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And and the importance of being part of Africa come as a whole. Yeah. I think because the books can reach so many communities and there's so much misinformation around Africa about key health issues and key social issues. You know, we did a book on how to get your government grant for South Africa. So these are types of issues that the book can be adapted for anything and anyhow and any topic. And I think there's still so much opportunity to do it in Africa. So we're excited that if more organizations around the continent see the impact of the book and maybe think that they've got a topic or a cause that they would like to see printed and being used, I think that's what we're hoping to do is to just network and meet more organizations that we could partner with. It's good luck. Uh, sorry, thank you. I'm saying good luck. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, we're holding thumbs and we'll definitely keep you posted and, and let you know. And I think it's, um, yeah, well, time will tell. <laughs> All right, thanks very much for joining us, Casey Chambers. Thank you very much for your support. Casey Chambers is with the South African Depart- Depression rather and Anxiety Group. <laughs> This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. With the festive season fast approaching, South African consumers are being encouraged to spend wisely and save money. The South African Savings Institute says the festive period is the opportune time for people to consider forming savings clubs and spend wisely. It says the period should also be a time to proactively plan for savings in the new year. Here's Ntlanta Matlango. The South African Savings Institute has launched its annual festive season savings campaign in a year where the South African rand has depreciated significantly against major currencies. Interest rates have risen after being at their lowest in 30 years, with more rate increases expected in 2016. 
More from Gerald Mwandiambira, the acting chief executive officer at the South African Saving Institute. I think it's very important. I think the picture is quite clear that the economy is not doing as well as it has been doing in the past and that there will be significant challenges probably if you look ahead. Already the South African Reserve Bank had indicated that interest rates may rise and in all likelihood they will rise sometime in 2016. So our normal messaging for the festive period is really around advising people to spend wisely and and think ahead. But this year we've taken a step back and said, look, rather than being prescriptive and saying do this, do that, we're saying let's all collaborate and find ways to save. And the first and easiest way to start saving is to take advantage of the fact that we've got families gathered and let's say which is family orientated, which would be either Christmas next year or Easter next year. And the thing with saving is once you have done it once and achieved a goal, it becomes easier to then save for other objectives. So what we've done is we've said, let's take it back to the people and say, everyone in South Africa, how would you like to save? The Consumer Financial Vulnerability Index indicates that the pressure on consumers' cash flow has remained consistently high throughout 2015. The Saving Institute says it's clear that most consumers have reached their affordability limits on even basic necessities and debt remains a major challenge for individuals and families alike. Gerald Mwandiambira, the Acting Chief Executive Officer at the South African Saving Institute, says they'll continue to raise financial education and savings levels to the top of their national agenda as savings is a significant national objective. I think everybody knows that things are getting a bit harder. And what yeah. we're doing is we're not saying being killjoy to say don't enjoy your Christmas. We're just saying enjoy your Christmas and festive period, but remember that 2016 is coming. And if you are going to spurge and enjoy your Christmas, while you're doing it, try and plan ahead and say, okay, let's, guys, next year might be hard. This is how much we spent this year on Christmas. Next year, how can we save the same amount so that next year Christmas, no one has to worry about going through this process? So that's the direction we'd like to take it because we do understand that people have had a difficult year and they do want to let go. All mm-hmm. we're saying is be conscientious and be advised that next year could be even tougher than this year. Meanwhile, the recent Old Mutual Savings and Investment Monitor shows that a growing number of saving groups are seeking alternative financial resources. It also shows that 20% of working metropolitan South Africans have any kind of formal savings and overall financial confidence and satisfaction is steadily declining. Old Mutual says with the festive season around the corner, the pressure on breadwinners will only intensify. Shelley Smith, the Chief Operating Officer at Old Mutual Finance, says the crisis has prompted them to develop a money account, a fully functional account that helps people save every time they swipe. As you know, um, many of our South Africans are over-indebted and it's very, very difficult for them to save. So Old Mutual was encouraged by this phenomenon to introduce a transactional product that is linked to a savings account that automatically enables our customers to save. So they don't have to open up a separate investment account or a separate savings account. They have automatic savings facility, which is attached to the transactional account. So each time that you swipe, you can select an amount, a percentage of 1 to 15% towards your savings. There is also the added benefit of saving a fixed amount every month, which is called focused save. So it's not just a savings as you swipe, but a fixed amount as well on any particular date that you choose to save. She says South Africa has by far the lowest savings levels amongst the five BRICS countries. So, I mean, if you had to compare South Africa to the remaining five BRIC countries, we are at the lowest levels at 16.5%. And it's followed by Brazil at 18%, Russia at almost 30%, India in excess of 30%, and China an astounding 50%. Those are the levels that we want our countries or our nation's savings to be at. She says with the festive season approaching, they are confident that people will heed the call and save. This is an opportunity during the festive season or uh, whether it's um, Christmas time, during Eid or during Easter, when most of us 
spend a lot more than what we usually do over the remaining of the year. You will obviously spend more, which means that as you swipe, you will save more which means that it will increase your savings and it will give you that confidence that in any emergency or unexpected expense, you have your savings to fall back on. That was Shelley Smith, the Chief Operating Officer at Old Mutual Finance. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Kantla Mathangu in Johannesburg. Sanfrey Economic News, here's with Sanne Matebula. Thanks, Pumelele. South African President Jacob Zuma has reiterated his country's commitment to the Southern African Customs Union, SACU, speaking to the guests at the inauguration of SACU's new headquarters in Vendhoek, Namibia. Zuma was at pains to erase doubts that South Africa may have qualms about continuing with the world's oldest custom union established in 1910. There have been persistent questions regarding whether South Africa is getting value for its money by being a member of the union, which sees it effectively subsidizing the economies of Botswana, Lesotho, Swaziland and Namibia. The very decision by SACO member states to establish a headquarters, I think it speaks volumes with regard to our commitment to continue with SACU as an important instrument for us as neighbor countries. If we did not have that commitment, I don't think we would have thought of establishing a headquarters. If there was any doubt anywhere that there is no commitment for the continuation of this wonderful organization, this very act deals with that doubt. South African Economic Development Minister Ibrahim Patel has lamed the behavior of some large retail chains that he claims misuse their access to alternative global supply chains to exploit small local suppliers. Addressing delegates at a BRICS conference in Durban, Patel has urged competition law experts to find new ways to deal with the abuse of dominance. He says farmers and small manufacturers are being disadvantaged by the behaviors of big retailers. It includes the challenge of dealing with a species of oligopsonies that emerge with the growth of large retail chains that materially shift the power relations between smaller, more numerous agriculture and manufacturing suppliers and larger but fewer retailers who are able to rely on their market power and also access to alternative large global supply chains to capture economic surplus by the exercise of entrenched power and who may dictate onerous terms on local suppliers. And further job losses in South Africa's mining industry could be on the cards as production dropped 4.8% year-on-year in September. The largest negative growth came from diamonds, iron ore and other metallic minerals. Meanwhile, production for the platinum group of metals increased by 25% in September from a year ago as a result of a low base due to the crippling strike last year. Market analyst at BP Benston, Marquema Silela, says the drop is not a surprise as commodity prices continue to fall. Unfortunately, if production is low, it means the company will make less money. And if you're making less money, you start to you have to start reducing cost. So in this instance, we know that they're also facing high electricity prices. But for men, for most companies, it's easy to cut uh, cost by reducing or retrenching workers. So yes, one will expect to see retrenchments happening in the mining industry going forward. Kenya Central Bank is considering harsher penalties for commercial banks that have flout the rules and it may publicize enforcement actions that it takes against errant banks. The financial system in East Africa's biggest economy was rattled last month after the central bank put Imperial, a mid-sized lender, under management due to fraud. The central bank may consider publishing details of penalties against banks that violate the laws.
In Nigeria's Guinness have been fined uh, five million U.S. dollars by the local food and drug agency for alleged infractions relating to the destruction and revalidation of expired raw materials without prior approval. The local unit of Diageo said it did not fully understand the basis for the fine, nor the particular regulations infringed, but was in talks with the National Agency for Food and Drug Administration and Control, NAVDAC, to resolve the matter. Guinness had operated in Nigeria for over 65 years and it conducted its business in accordance with the law. The regulator gave uh, the company, which is Nigeria's second largest brewer, two weeks from Monday to pay the fine. In some currencies news, the South African rand has weakened more than 1% against the U.S. dollar ahead of the U.S. Federal Reserve Policy Conference later today. Investors anticipate a December rate hike. The local unit has weakened to 14.32 against the greenback, hovering near an all-time low of 14.39 per dollar. ETM economist Jana van Defenter says selling on the rand is in anticipation of hawkish statements from the Federal Reserve. And that's your economics news. Thank you very much, Usani. It's 17.50 Central African time. Time for sports news. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with football news. While 13 African countries have already had to say goodbye to their dream of competing in the 2018 FIFA World Cup Russia, 27 others join a race this week that will end with the ultimate prize of participation on the grandest football stage of all. The 40 teams remaining in the African qualifying competition were drawn into 20 pairings with the winners of the two-legged ties advancing to the group stages. Five matches will take place from Thursday afternoon into the night. Togo hosts Uganda, Burundi hosts DR Congo, Benin are at home against Burkina Faso, Guinea are in Windhoek against Namibia, while Morocco are at home against Equatorial Guinea. South Africa's senior women's team Banyana Banyana will play either Mauritius or Botswana in the African Women's Championship qualifying match for a place in the finals in Cameroon later next year. The finals will be staged from the 19th of November to the 3rd of December, with South Africa seeking to win their first African title after several near misses. Fran Hilton-Smith, Technical Director for Women's Football at the South African Football Association, welcomed the draw. Well, I think a very good draw. We played uh, Botswana on a number of occasions. Haven't played Mauritius. They had new kids on the block, so um, I'm pretty confident it'll be a, a tough game against Botswana, of course, but we hope to get through so we can qualify for now the 10th edition of the African Women Championships, which, yes, will be held in Cameroon in November, December next year. Um, always a very tough competition, but an exciting one. So we look forward to meeting the old foes again, like Equatorial Guinea, Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria, Ghana, uh, in that tournament. And the Confederation of African Football, CAF, has extended its deepest condolences to the Liberia Football Association as the passing of the General Secretary of Liberia Football Association, Alfonso Amar. Amar passed away on Wednesday night after losing a battle with liver cancer for which he was recently flown to India for treatment. Amar was laid to rest earlier on Thursday. And the prospect of Russia being banned from next year's Olympic Games in Rio appears to have receded after the IOC President Thomas Bach admitted the organization lacked the power to ban the country. The World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA's independent commission, has called on Russia to be barred from the Games, but Bach says 
the IOC has no authority to do so and that any such decision must come from the IAAF, Athletics World's governing body. On to cricket news, Proteus Sima Venon Philander has been ruled out of the remainder of the Test Series against India after sustaining an ankle injury during a training session in Bengaluru on Thursday morning. Kylie Abbott has been called up to replace Philander and will join up with the squad on Friday morning. Proteus manager Dr. Mohamed Musaji explained Venon rolled his left ankle during practice at the stadium in Bengaluru this morning. He was taken to the hospital for the MRI scan, which confirmed an ankle ligament tear, which will rule him out of the current series against India. He will return back to Cape Town this weekend to be assessed by one of the Cricket South Africa's specialists. And finally, with BMW Masters, golfer Sergio Garcia leads the BMW Masters in Shanghai into round two. Nick Dye reports. Rose won the Hong Kong Open on his last outing. He's recharged the batteries since, and considering he came close to victory here at Lake Malloran last year behind Marcel Ziem, well, the world number six will expect to thrive. Henrik Stenson, the Turkish Open champion, Victor de Buisson, Sergio Garcia and Ian Poulter will also be of the same mind in the third event on the tour's final series. But with Dubai next week and in McElroy's absence, it'll be intriguing just how close Willick can get or whether he can even pass the world number three in the race. Willett finished in style with a closing 62 last week in Shanghai and he makes the move across the city brimming with confidence. That's the Sport News this hour. This is Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories. Angolan authorities accused of tightening screws against freedom of expression and innovation by SADAC shortlisted for a prestigious award. In economics, Air Mauritius narrows its first half pre-tax loss to 4.1 million US dollars. And in sports, 27 African countries joined the race to Russia 2018. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spomene Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Tumelo Mugwena and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On S- SMS plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero on Twitter channel Africa One. We leave you with blessed and highly favored by Proverb and the Soil.